The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of First United Methodist Church in Beaumont, Texas. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to love your city with the heart of Christ. I am Scott Jones, and it's my privilege to serve as the Bishop of the Texas Annual Conference. I'm so grateful that you all have invited Mary Lou and me to participate in this Golden Milestone celebration with you all today, and we rejoice at 178 years of continuous service and 50 years of serving God in this building. So we're grateful to you, uh, John, there you are, uh, for the invitation to be a part of this with you today and are pleased at all the things that God is doing through this congregation. Sometimes people aren't, don't have a long history with being United Methodist, and they say, well, what is a bishop anyway? I usually use a chess analogy to say I move diagonally long distances. Um, <laughs> the Texas Annual Conference is 58, uh, 680 churches uh, worshiping God and serving God in 58 counties, stretching from Texarkana to College Station, and then I usually say Beaumont and Orange to remind people that there's something out of Houston, outside of Houston, after all, that's valuable and important. So uh, I live in Houston, but I really travel around quite a bit, and Mary Lou and I are glad to be part of this celebration with you all today. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit in this place. For we trust your promise that wherever two or more are gathered, there you will be also. And yet, God, sometimes we don't get it. And so we ask, open our eyes that we might see you. Open our ears that we might truly hear your word. And then, God, strengthen our hands and feet that we might be doers of the word and not hearers only. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. What do you want to be when you grow up? That's a very important question for everybody in this room. Now, some of you are thinking, wait a minute, the kids were just here. That's the appropriate children's sermon, right? Because we ask young people about, well, their future career. What do you want to be when you grow up? Well, we're expecting answers like, I want to be a teacher, or I want to be a, a baseball player, or I want to be a Methodist preacher when I grow up. You know, the kinds of things that set a career and a, a job and, and an activity. I don't know who the oldest person in this room is, but if I were to speak to him or her, well, frankly, I have in mind my stepfather, Dean, who's 96, 98, excuse me. Dean is 98, and if he were worshiping here, I'd be happy to look him in the eye and say, Dean, what do you want to be when you grow up? Clearly, he's been retired for several decades, but that gets to the point that the question of what do you want to be when you grow up isn't really about employment. It's about what kind of person do you want to be at the end of your days whenever that comes? What is God doing in your life that's going to help you reach your life's goal between now and the time that you move on to your heavenly reward? Quite frankly, when I was a young man, I had certain visions of what I wanted to be when I grew up. My parents' marriage was not always the best, and so I grew up out of my teens and college years saying, I want to be a better husband than my father was. I also wanted to be a better father than my father was. Can you hear some issues I had as a teenager? Yeah. I also wanted to have my life count. 
I wanted to do the kinds of things that would leave the world a better place. I wanted to have an impact on ending poverty, on improving race relations, on helping people know Jesus. I wanted to live a life that was going to have some significance behind it. And so with these goals as a young man, I began to think through, okay, how am I going to reach those goals? Well, it wasn't very long before I realized that I was in deep trouble. You see, it became pretty clear that I'm a sinner and that I can't reach those goals by myself. As I failed at one thing after the other, as I began to realize that there were problems, that I couldn't make it, the question was, oh God, how am I going to reach my life's goals? Well, on the question of becoming a good husband, Mary Lou and I got married, and there was a period about six and a half years into our marriage when, well, quite frankly, things were bad. She could do nothing right for about three months. It was terrible. Now, fortunately, we had made a commitment, never to mention the D word. And so I remember sitting in a van outside her office saying, I don't know how we're going to get through this, but somehow we will. At the time, I was teaching an adult Sunday school class, and yet even though I was the teacher, well, I learned more from the guys in the class than I gave them, I think. It was drinking coffee with Fred Arnold before the class began that I would say, Fred, you will not believe what Mary Lou did to me this week. <laughs> and I would recount the ways my terrible wife had injured me. He said, well, I'm no expert on marriage, but uh, this is how Nancy and I handled it. It took that kind of conversation with a group of Christian men to help me realize that the problem wasn't Mary Lou's. The problem was mine. And it was in that Christian community that all of a sudden God began to change my heart and help me begin, begin to accomplish my goals. You see, what I realized in those years in my 20s and early 30s was that, in fact, I was only going to reach my life's goals by the grace of God. Maybe you've see, heard that phrase there, but for the grace of God go I. Well, that was coined by a preacher in England in the 1600s watching a man about to be hanged. He knew that it's the grace of God that changes our hearts and minds, that allows us to become the kind of people God has fully intended us to be. I think that's the point of Jesus' great commission at the end of the Gospel of Matthew that was just read a few minutes ago, because Jesus was trying to remind us that He's in the business of saving souls, and that we as a Christian people, as followers of Jesus, have a responsibility to be channels for that saving grace of God to help young people like me become the kind of adult men and women well, to grow up to be the kind of people God wants them to be. You see, when Jesus talks about making disciples, He's doing it in a way that says, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to participate with you in that process, but that disciple-making process is something that, well, requires human participation. 
think about all the ministries that we do here at First United Methodist Church in Beaumont. Think about weekly worship. When you gather here today, you're expecting to encounter God. It might come in my sermon, that's my intention at least, or it might have come in the hymns we sang or the beautiful music we'll hear from the choir, or perhaps in the prayers that we say together. But when we gather together here, God is present in this room, and you should leave here a stronger person, a more holy person than when you walked into the room. That's why we're in worship every week. Now, some of you may have come just for this special celebration, but I hope you're here next week when there'll be better preaching, okay? In other words, you need to be in church somewhere every week because it's in this gathered community of faith that we experience the power of the Holy Spirit to shape our minds. Every week we need to be reminded, minded again, of who we are and what it is that God's called us to be and to become. We also offer weekly Bible studies here because it's in a community of people who are reading God's Word together that we begin to understand it. God has revealed the truth to us in the Scriptures, and yet the Bible's a complicated book. And so when we gather in a community of people and read the Scriptures together, sometimes with a resource or another book that's going to guide us through it, then all of a sudden we begin to understand God has a plan for our lives, and we need to follow it that there are, in fact, eternal principles of behavior and of faith and of truth that this Bible conveys to us. And so whether it's a Sunday school class or a midweek Bible study or some other small group, it's in those places that we begin to recognize God's speaking to me and I need to listen. I hope you're engaging in daily prayer, whether it's over a meal or in your morning devotions. It's in that time of prayer that God speaks to us. We make our needs known to God. We hear what God wants to say to us. Every day I start my day with that kind of prayer, praising God, thanking God so that I have a heart of gratitude, confessing my sins to God that I have these growing issues that even though God's been at work on me now for decades, I'm not finished yet and then a long list of people that I pray for every day. And I close with John Wesley's covenant prayer saying, God, use me to be a part of what it is that you're blessing and doing in the world. Another way in which our church makes disciples of Jesus Christ is that we are in fact going out and serving others. I take the Bible very, very seriously. And Jesus has some commandments in the New Testament that bother me deeply. Oh, now, friends, there are parts of the Bible I don't understand. You know, when it comes to Daniel and Revelation, there's stuff in there that I think, oh, well, maybe I'll figure it out when I get to heaven. The parts of the Bible that bother me are the parts I do understand, where Jesus said, if you want to make it to heaven, you need to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit those who are sick and in prison. When Jesus says that, you're going to need to do all of those things to be a part of what I'm doing in the world. I think, God, I want to be a part of that. I can't do all those things myself, but if I'm part of a Christian community, I can be supportive of people who are, in fact, on the front lines of dealing with the poor 
or feeding the hungry or helping the homeless or building homes for people, all those things, I want to be a part of that. Friends, I hope during our prayer time today that we are mindful of the people in North and South Carolina right now. It's only been a year, a little more than that, since Harvey was interrupting our lives. And my heart is going out to all of those people who are now experiencing that devastating rain. Just as people from around the world helped us here in this southeast Texas area during Hurricane Harvey, I hope we're going to be a part of reaching out and offering the same sort of support to our United Methodist brothers and sisters who will be doing hurricane relief, disaster relief, in those affected communities in the Carolinas. When we're a part of that, we're a part of what it is that means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Another thing we do as a church family that's important in this disciple-making process is have fellowship together. I think we're having lunch after church, right, Silverio? Part of being a church family means we're in community with people who are on the same journey that we are. Part of that journey is inspiring each other, encouraging each other, holding each other accountable for following Jesus and living our lives to the best standards possible. Elizabeth Snell was 85 years old when I became her pastor. I was pastor in Howe, Texas, and uh, spent four and a half years there. And Elizabeth was one of those people who became just an incredible inspiration to me. At 85, she saw it as her job to take care of the old people in the community. <laughs> she still was driving. She would go and visit them. If they needed groceries at the end of the month, she'd buy some for them. If they needed a prescription picked up in the county seat of Sherman, she'd go to the pharmacy and pick up their prescription for them. If they didn't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, she would share her faith with them and tell them why they needed to make a commitment of their life to Christ and to join the church. A couple of times she came to me and said, Preacher, I've just about got this one ready for you to harvest. Her next-door neighbor was one of those. I visited him in the hospital in Sherman. And he then made his confession of faith in Christ and became a Christian there in that hospital room. I did his funeral two weeks later. A month after that, his wife and daughter joined the church. Elizabeth Snell did not accomplish anything in her life that would make her famous by secular or worldly standards. She never went to college. She'd never made much money. She lived in a frame house in North Texas with only a window unit air conditioner. And yet, that woman had a heart as pure as anybody I know. What I learned out of my time of being her pastor was that this is a way to envision the goal of my life. If at the end of my days I've become anything like Elizabeth Snell, God will have worked a miracle because I will truly have accomplished something worthwhile. She loved the Lord with all of her heart and all of her soul and all of her mind. And she gave of her time and resources, whatever she had was devoted to Christ. My friends, that's part of what living in a Christian community is like. That there are probably some spiritual giants among you all who are inspiring you. And some of you all who ought to be investing in younger people in the community. So that you can be that kind of inspiration, that kind of teacher, that kind of mentor to younger people who are coming along behind you.
That's what being part of a community is all about. I'm so grateful for the way that the people of this congregation have made disciples of Jesus Christ for the last 178 years. But I also want you to take this 50th anniversary of a building to think back about how Christianity has changed since this building was first dedicated and constructed. There was a time in America, in Texas, where people who built church buildings, all they had to do was build it and they would come. You simply opened the door, and the culture was so supportive of Christianity, well, in Beaumont, as well as lots of other places, you could ask a, new, a person you newly met, which church do you attend? The assumption was that everybody had a church family, and even if this person didn't attend a church, they knew which church they would attend if they ever did attend. You know what I mean? In other words, the culture was supportive of Christianity in particular ways. Also, the pattern of life in Beaumont was different than it is today. Downtown had a different character. People hadn't built out as far away from downtown as they used to have. And so the mission that made sense for this building 50 years ago has changed, hasn't it? And yet, I said that wrong. The mission has not changed. The mission has been continuous, well, since the time of Jesus. What's changed is the mission field. And instead of building, having a church organized on what we now call the attraction model, we have to have a church built on a mission model. I'm a fourth-generation Methodist preacher, which means that my grandfather was a Methodist preacher growing up in Iowa. And while he served churches in Iowa, his sister felt a call to be a missionary. Well, if you're a young woman in a Methodist church in Iowa in the 1920s, and you want to be a missionary, what do you do? Well, you write the Board of Missions and volunteer because Iowa's a Christian state and you need to be a missionary in a foreign country. So she went to China. She served for decades in China and then the Philippines and had a very powerful life as a missionary among foreign people. I want to tell you that things have changed. I'm not going to debate whether or not Iowa was a fully Christian state back in the 1920s or Beaumont or any place for that matter. But I am here to tell you that I'm convinced today that the mission field is on the doorstep of this church. Within five or seven miles of this building, there are thousands of people who don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. There are thousands of people who are going to hell. There are thousands of people who are living in a kind of hell. And they need precisely that relationship with Christ, that sense of community, that sense of support that will allow them to live a life that's full and meaningful and reach salvation. We lived in Wichita for 12 years where I was bishop. And a man from Mary Lou's hometown was there in the community. He'd been in Wichita for four decades, and his wife died. Well, when there's a death in the family, what does a United Methodist woman do? You make a casserole, right? You take the casserole to the family that's grieving. So she bakes a casserole, goes to this guy's house, and is absolutely shocked because his daughter's there and nobody else. 
That was the only food that had been brought in. In other words, this man had spent four decades living a life with no church family, with no spiritual support, and was grieving and trying to cope with one of the worst things that could happen in a life all by himself. He needed a church, but he didn't know he needed a church. My guess is, friends, that you all know people in exactly that same situation. They need the love of God in their lives. They need a relationship with a community. They need a Sunday school class. They need a Bible study group. They need a United Methodist Women's Group. They need to be part of a fish frying team some February. You know what I mean? And the only way they're going to find out that there is a God, that there is a Savior, is if you take that little card that's inserted in your bulletin today and tell them, I'm part of a church where there's good preaching if the bishop isn't there. I'm part of a church where the love of Christ is embedded in everything that we do. Why don't you come check us out? This is an anniversary of sorts. Anniversaries are time for celebrating what God has done in the past, but also of looking forward into the future. A number of years ago, I was on a mission trip with a youth group driving from North Texas to South Texas to build homes or repair homes during that week, the girls in my van decided to talk about their favorite movies. And they said to me, Preacher, what's your favorite movie? I always tell the truth. I'll tell you the truth because the answer is still the same. My favorite movie of all time is The Lion King. It's a little embarrassing since it's an animated children's movie. But there's a scene at the end where Simba, who's in exile, sees a vision of his dead father. He's having a good time, living the good life, but back home, things are falling apart. He hears about how bad things are back home and is struggling with, can he go back? And he has this vision of his dead father who says this to him, Simba, you are much more than what you have become. Remember who you are. Friends, as you celebrate over a century and a half of Christian mission here in Beaumont and of all the good times experienced in this facility, I want you to remember who you are because you are, in fact, much more than what you've become. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.lovebeaumont.com.